will, with me to Acts 17, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. Um, we're kind of introducing a, a, a new topic here over the coming weeks, and it's a subject that, quite honestly, I didn't really think we needed to talk about or to study. I just assumed, made some assumptions about things, and then as soon as you do, then uh, you quickly find out, uh-oh. And a few weeks ago, I did a message about the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died on Calvary, he did not go down into the torment side of hell. He went into the paradise side of hell. And from that message, I got several comments and questions about hell and about the subject. What is it? You know, he, you've really never taught about this, and Paul never talks about it in his epistles and this and that. And so I've spent the last couple of weeks digging out some old notes, and apparently, and I went looking, I apparently I've never really taught this in a subject matter like this. So we're going to look at the issue over the next several weeks uh, concerning the doctrine of eternal judgment and the issue of hell, the issue of the lake of fire, and really to do it so that we understand the doctrine. Uh, we understand the fact that hell is a real entity. It's a real thing. And it's something that when you think about being a, believing in the grace of God, understanding the word rightly divided, dispensational Bible study, you really don't think that there's an issue about it. And yet there is, has been here recently in some of our, the grace circles, great issues about it. And unfortunate that it is that way. And uh, my goal isn't to blast away at all the bad doctrine. My goal is to teach you the doctrine. You got Acts, right? Look over at 2 Corinthians 1, as my manner is, to go look at something else just real quick. Look at, at, look at 2 Corinthians 1. When, you, when we talk about the issue of eternal judgment, when we talk about hell, the lake of fire, the judgment of God uh, on the lost, it's an issue that needs to be understood clearly from a dispensational perspective. And again, my goal is 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. My goal is not to tell you this guy's right and this guy's wrong. Okay, My goal is to, here's the doctrine. And if we're going to say that we believe the King James Bible, we're going to say that we believe God's word, then what are we going to believe? The doctrine. Okay? And in doing that, again, it's greatly, the subject is greatly misunderstood. There's different ideas. I don't have it with me, but you can, you Google, you, <laughs> Google is great right now uh, on this. You have people who are universalist. They believe in the end everybody is saved. Uh, and then, by the way, there's various points underneath that. You believe in the, uh, the, you have part of that, the annihilationist, who believe that you're just annihilated, soul sleep idea. So you get all of these different, and really those come from a misunderstanding about what Scripture says about hell and about judgment. Some will say, well, God's, God is a God of love, so he would never judge anyone to eternal damnation. Well, yes and no. God's love, it, it, it'll never let you go. You know, when you think about real love, God's love, it'll never let you go. You can't run so far that it can never reach you. It will always reach you. His love will never let you down. It will never disappoint you. But you know what? His love will never let you off the hook either. It'll hold you accountable. Because that's who he is. That's his character. That's his righteousness. That's his holiness. That's his integrity. And so when they say, Oh, the love of God would never do that. Yeah, yeah, but his love does require accountability. If you think about accountability and responsibility, that's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. <laughs> he, he gave them volition. He gave them free will to make a choice, but then to be held accountable for their choices. 
So when you begin to look at the different ideas, again, the goal here is you need to understand the doctrine. We need to understand why God created hell. Why did he do it? What was he thinking? What was going on? And we'll look at that. Because when you think about this, and you, again, entertain these other, don't entertain it. You shouldn't go look for error, because error will find you eventually. When you entertain those ideas, by the way, you find out that the verses that they use, they really are using them from an NIV or from another version. Hardly ever do they use the verses right out of the King James Bible. Because in the other versions, we're, we're going to look at Mark 9 here in, in a little bit. Uh, come back over to Romans 1. We're going uh, to, well, I told you Acts 17, right? Let's just stick there. We're going to see over in Mark 9 that they actually leave out three verses. The verses that say where the worm dieth not and fire is not quenched. Those, leave it out. Well, if it's not on the page, then I don't have to deal with it. And in reality, you do have to deal with it. So as we begin to consider the subject, we want to look at it doctrinally, and we're going to look at it dispensationally, but just like we do any doctrine, because there's an issue in time past, there's an issue in the but now, whoops, and there's an issue in the ages to come when you think about the issue of eternal judgment. And as we look at that and as we consider it, you real quickly begin to say, wow, okay, there's some things here that I need to pay attention to. The biggest one for me is when I hear people say that Paul never talks about hell in his epistles. Well, that's an interesting thing. Who does Paul write his epistles to? The lost or the saints of the Most High? The saints. So why would he talk about hell, the eternal judgment of the lost, to you and I? But yet it is an integral part of his gospel. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed. We'll get over there in just a second. So he starts dealing with the issue of justification with what? The wrath of God being revealed. So it is an integral part of his gospel, of the gospel message. I just made that worse, didn't I? I can see it out of the bottom of my eye. Isn't that, isn't that irritating? I can just, it's like, okay, you know? Well, I got a scratch on my glasses. Not over in the corner, right in the middle, you know? It's like, come on, really? So now it's dodging the scratch. So when we, when we look at things here and we talk about the wrath of God and we talk about the eternal, just know it, it is a doctrine that Paul does find very, very needful to understand. Look at Acts 17. We're just jumping in here. He's been preaching on the Mars Hill. Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I pass by and behold your devotions, I find an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom, they, whom therefore ye ignorantly worshipped, him declare I unto you. And he goes into talking about the God of the Bible, the unknown God. And he, he's dealing with them, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also as your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's devices. That's how religion thinks about God. Okay? It's just a, he's just another idol thing. Verse 30. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere... To what? To repent. So back here, in times past, he's got Israel as his people, and the Gentiles are down here. They're cut off. They're set aside. And, he, and you know what? He calls this the time of ignorance. And what did God do? He winked at it. Now think about a wink of God going for 2,000 plus years. You know, holy cow. 
but now watch verse 31. Why does he call, he, the end of verse 30, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why does he do that? Why is he now calling all men to repentance? Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. What's going to happen is, is out here in the to come, it's called the great white throne judgment, we'll get over there in a little bit, he's going to do what? What's he going to do? He's going to judge. He's going to judge all men. There's a judge. All of mankind's going to face the judge. As believers, we have the judgment seat of Christ. Great, glorious, wonderful day. But as unbelievers, as lost, they've got a day out here called the great white throne judgment, and they're going to face the judge. So do you know why religion hides this fact about hell, hides the fact about the God of the Bible? It's because what do they know? They know they're going to stand in judgment, and he's their judge. So they move it. Come over to chapter 24 of Acts. So the issue of eternal judgment is on Paul's mind in Acts 17, 31. It's there. He's appointed a day in which he's going to judge, Acts 24. So when you see people object, and they'll say, well, today's a day of grace. So don't talk about wrath. You'll scare people. Don't do this. Don't do that. But, but yeah, today is the age of grace. That's what the but now is. It's the age of grace, the dispensation of grace. That's why 1731, he said what? There is a day out here. God, God's holding back his wrath. What's holding back his wrath today? The age of grace is. He's not imputing their trespasses unto him. He's holding it back. Romans 12, we've been studying Romans 12 the first hour he says, avenge not yourselves, for I'm going to repay. There's a day when I'm going to take care of this. It's like that thing in Ecclesiastes 8, where about a sentence not executed swiftly. People think, oh, he's just not going to do it. Yes, he's going to do it, but he's going to do it when it's time to do it. You with me? Okay. So don't let somebody pull this, oh, well, today's a day of grace and you shouldn't talk about hell, you'll scare everybody. No, because you ought to be talking about hell. You ought to be talking about eternal judgment because it plays a, a critical, a prominent role in Paul's gospel. Folks, if you can't get people lost, you can't get them saved. See? So if, by the way, there's a wonderful idea out there, not wonderful, it's a heresy, it's heresy that everybody's saved, they just don't know it. So when you preach them the gospel, then they understand that they've always been forgiven or saved. So that means you've got people in hell who are saved. It's not how it... That goes against a just God. Romans 3, he's the justifier. He's just and justifier. Acts 24 here. You see, folks, the wrath of God plays a basic component in Paul's gospel. And we need to understand the wrath issue to understand, ultimately, Calvary and what he's doing there. Acts 24, verse 24, Paul is before Felix. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperaments, and what? Judgment to come. Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this season, for this time when I have convenient season, I will call for you, for thee. Look at that. Felix trembled. What did he tremble at? Temperance and righteousness? Probably, no, judgment. You see, Felix, he trembled at what he heard. Well, what did he hear? Come over to Romans 1. Here's what he heard. He, he, he heard about a judgment coming. Look at Romans 1. So when you, 
it's quite clear, and we just used two verses in Acts, there's many others, where Paul dealt with, the when Paul deals with the unsaved, the issue of eternal judgment is paramount. It's front and center. Old man Bob Jones used to say, better to be hell scared than hell scorched. And that's exactly what it is. And I know people say, well, I got saved so I wouldn't go to hell. You know, that's legitimate. <laughs> that's, a great reason not, that's a great reason to get saved. Because you don't know anything else other than what? If you died today, you're going to spend eternity in hell. The lake of fire, ultimately, that second death. And all that. And you go, oh my goodness, don't tell them that. You've got to be nice to people. No, Calvary is offensive, folks, and it's offensive for a reason. Look at Romans 1.16. Look at what Paul did. For I am, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you see where the power sits? It sits in the gospel of who? The gospel of Christ. Calvary. What he did, what he accomplished at Calvary. And what it means, and that's what Paul's, that's what the due time testifiers tell. Here's what this means. Back over here in time past, it was just for the many. I've come to save Israel. Why? Because in Israel's program, Israel's got to be right so the Gentiles can then get right. And if Israel's not right, then the Gentiles can't get right. So what does he do? He casts Israel aside, sets, interrupts that program, says, no, we're going to do something else. It's a day of my grace. And today, here's what Calvary really means. Here's the meaning behind it. Now it's everyone individually comes to, to faith faith comes to calvary we have we sing a song the the foot of the ground is level at the foot of the cross why no man stands higher than i why because now it's an all man and he says hey the power of god unto salvation isn't in over here being nice with people it's being what straight with them honest with them here's the judgment there's coming a day of judgment in your life. And when that comes, you need to be ready. And the only way to be ready is to understand what you're facing. So what does he do in verse 18? For the wonderful love of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly. No, for the what? For the wrath of God is revealed. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteous, because that, that which may be known of God. And he goes into Romans' foundational book for you and I. He goes into this wonderful exhortation in proving the case. Come over to chapter 3, just real quick. Look at 3 9. He's this wonderful case law of here's the deal here's the problem with man man's heathen at his core he's a lost he's a sinner romans 3 verse 9 what then are we better than they knowing wise for we have before both uh, before proved both jews and gentiles that they are all under what either they are or they're not so now, who becomes the final authority? You do. Because you say, well, I'm not going to be offensive, so we're just going to sugarcoat that. We're not going to use the word hell. We're going to use the word Hades. Well, everybody knows Hades is not the word used by lost man. You know, just go by, a, you know, oh, they used the right word, okay? But see, the thing is, is what are we, we're trying to soften, and we're trying to make an appeal. You, make, you know how you make the appeal? Romans 5, verse 8, but God committed his love toward you, and that while you were yet a what? A sinner, an enemy, ungodly. What did he do for you? He died for you. He took care of the issue. Come over to chapter 2 of Romans. So what do you have? Romans 1, you got this case. He's proving the case that all of mankind are sinners. In Romans 1, he goes down into the Human, humanity itself at its basis core. But in chapter 2, you get some objections because not everybody lives down in that gutter over there. Some live over here, and they, it's called the, the, uh, the moralizer. And by the way, you know why it's called that? Because Schofield put that note across the top of this section. It's fascinating how people get their, some of their uh, wording from the, the notes and stuff. But he says, verse 1, thou, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, 
Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For, that, for thou that judgest dost, doest the same things. Oh, isn't that the way it goes? Practice what you preach, preacher. You know, the politicians say we're going to do this, and then they go do something else. And what do you say? You d no, here we go. What's happening? Hey, you got a bunch of guys who are saying they're not following the rules. And then they turn over, and guess what? They're not following them either. Why aren't they? Because they're a sinner, verse 2. But we are sure, now watch this, that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest, this, that, and thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up against thyself wrath, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. What in the world? Oh, my goodness. What's man trying to do? Avoid the judgment. So then what do we do? We speak away, teach away the issue of eternal judgment. So just remember for Paul, eternal judgment, wrath, hell, it's of great importance. And here in the book of Romans, this doctrinal treatise about salvation in the age of grace, here in the first three chapters, as he deals with the issue of sin and condemnation, right in the middle of it, chapter 2, what's he talking about? There's a day of judgment coming your way. Where God is going to take you and he's going to render to you according to your deeds. And what are your deeds? Your deeds ain't good. It doesn't matter how good you think it is. That's why he says, verse 7, To them who by patience, continuance, and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. Hey, do you? verse 7 is a great definition of perfect righteousness. You've got to continue in well-doing. You know what that means? You never mess up. You continue in it. You never have a bad day. You never have a day off. I'm talking to Ricky, how's it going? Not a good day today, Dad. Oh, okay, I'll talk to you later. Click, <laughs> quick. Why? You don't get a bad day. You can't have it. You've got to continue in it. Because if you don't, what are you? Well, you're verse 8. But unto them that are contentious. You see, contentious versus doing what? Well, doing. No, I ain't going to do that, man. Are you kidding? Look at what they did to me. They cut me off. Run down there and cut them back off. You know, slow down. Put the blinkers on. Crash on I-60 or US-60. Here we go. And there's the preacher in the middle of it, you know. What happened? Well, he just, you know. No. Wrath. That's what's happening here. And it's an integral part of Paul's gospel. And you cannot get to chapter 3 where he begins to teach us about that we are justified by faith and we're justified freely and we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and that you and whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. You can't get there without the wrath because the question then is, is why did he do that if there's no wrath, if there's no judgment? Why did he do that? He didn't need to do that. Well, so then you get spinned off into all these other her heretical, it's just crazy ideas, okay? So when we come to this subject of eternal judgment, I'm, I'm not coming to it very lightly. I hope you can tell that. Because it's something that is an integral part of the gospel message. And quite frankly, we don't talk about it. Come over to the book of Revelation. And when you don't talk about it, as, as you ought to talk about it, I guess, then sometimes you wonder whether or not it's even real or not <laughs> and th that you believe it. So we're going to discuss it. But how we're going to discuss this is doctrinally and dispensationally, for here's what the Scripture says, okay? And we're going to do it on the timeline. Revelation 14, we're out here in the ages to come, okay? So let's just get some time on here. We got Calvary. Christ dies, he's ascended, he comes back in the Acts, he, the diminishing away of Israel. You've got Paul, Acts 9, on the road to Damascus. You've got 
the church, the body of Christ, were taken out at the end. We call that the rapture. Then you have the 70th week of Daniel, the second coming, the setting up of the kingdom, and the great white throne judgment. And then you go out into the new heaven and earth. Okay? Now, we're going to look at some stuff that's going to show hell at each component, at each thing. Okay? What was hell back here? We're going to look at Mark 9, tremendous passage on this. We're going to look at Luke 16, another tremendous passage on it. We're not going to look at it today, and, okay, coming. We're going to go get over here. We're, going to, we're in Revelation 14. So where are we in Revelation 14? We're in the to come. We're in the future. By the way, I keep walking around and myself dizzy. thousand years, Satan is bound into the bottomless pit. There's a lake of fire out here, okay? He's then loosed. 30 seconds, Christ destroys him, and he's going to be cast into the lake of fire, okay? The lake of fire is going to sit out here. Great white throne judgment, death and hell, and the sea are delivered. We'll talk about all that. They're cast there. This is the second death. That is the death that the Savior died for all of mankind. He's the Savior of all, Paul says. Especially them that, what, believe. See the condition there. Revelation 14. Just get an idea here this morning that of what hell is. <laughs> it's a place of torment. It's a place we're going to have a party. I had a guy tell me one time, oh, me and my, you know, we're going to take it. We're all Marines. We're going to run it down. We're going to take over. No, you're not. Okay. But he thought so. Revelation 14, verse number 9. Just watch this here. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, we'll look at that. We'll see that here they're in the presence, but then out in the future they're not in the presence anymore. Okay, so again, dispensationally, if you don't take this subject matter dispensationally, you wind up being a, 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 a universalist. You, that's where you end up. You end up off into believing in annihilation. You end up believing in soul sleep and all the other stuff because dispensationally, this has to be, so where are we? We're out in the, in the to come. We're in the 70th week. And what are they not to take? The mark. Well, what happens if you take the mark? Notice verse 10, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Tormented, without mixture, no dilution. We stopped the other day at Dutch Brothers, and I got a lemonade, and it was not diluted. So it was like, oh, my goodness. You know, we got to Michael and Kaylee's and asked for some sugar just to kind of, you know, it was like, oh, it was like, oh, well, what's the wrath going to be? Oof, it ain't going to be good. It's poured out with what? Without the mixture. There's no diluting it. There's no dilution of it. There's no softening of it. It's coming. They're tormented, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. See how day and night are there? It's interesting. Who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. You know what's going to happen to the Christ rejectors, the ones who take this, who disobey the word of God? By the way, these are Jewish people that he's dealing with here. And what do they do? They take that mark on, and you know what? They have no hope of ever getting into that kingdom out there. It's where are they going? They're going to torment. They're going to be, they're going to be facing the judgment of God. 
Torment. Now that issue about torment. Hold on to Revelation 14. Come back to Matthew 8. That issue of torment, it has to do with suffering pain. Okay? Um, it's not snuffed out. It's not unconscious condition. Matthew 8. It's rather pain. It's a physical pain. It's, ang it's, 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 a, it's agony. Matthew 8. The Lord is speaking here, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Here comes a Gentile looking for help from the Messiah of Israel. He comes by faith. And saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously, what? Tormented. So was he snuffed out? No. He's suffering physically, isn't he? Come over to chapter 18. Chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 34. 1834. And again, the Lord's talking here, and the Lord and his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors that he should pay all that was due unto him. Tormentors. What are physical discomforts come in this guy's way for being a, a bad servant? So when you come back to Revelation 14, 11, they're in torment for how long? Forever. We'll get over in a minute and see what that means. Because they don't say forever means forever. They use that Greek word eon, aeon, and they say, well, it just means age, because an age can come to an end. But that's not what the word means. It means what? Eternal is what the word means when you come in into Scripture. So in Revelation 14, there's a mark of the beast, right? If you take it, you're going to get cast into torments for how long? Forever. Now, come over to Revelation 20. I'm sorry, Revelation 19. It's going to last forever. So you're going to have some torments. And it's going to last forever. Now, watch this. Revelation 19 and verse number 20. Revelation 19.20. We are at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. We're at the end of the events of the second coming. He's, he's a, his second coming, his pouring out of wrath is done. His avenging his enemies is done. He's established the little flock in the, with the new covenant. He's establishing the beginning of the, of the kingdom reign, the millennial kingdom here, but the millennial, the thousand years, but the kingdom reign. He's getting all of that set up, and he's going to take, verse 20, and the beast was taken, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet, Revelation 19, 20, that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast how? They were cast how? Alive. Into where? Into the lake of fire. Burning with brimstone. So, where did the false prophet the Antichrist, and the Antichrist go? In the lake of fire, but they went there alive, didn't they? Now this is over here at the end, right? Now what's he do? He bound Satan, chapter 20. He takes verse 2, and he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. He's bound a thousand years, isn't he? That's a long time, isn't it? A lot of stuff goes on in that thousand years. But come on over to verse 5. Revelation 25, 20, verse 5. But the rest of, uh, um, of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Verse 7. So where are we at? We're at the end of the thousand years, aren't we? And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and encompassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven out of, from God out of heaven and devoured them. There's The picture of that is Elijah with Baal. Okay? Now watch verse 10. 
And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire with brimstone, where the beasts and the false prophets ceased to exist. Where the false prophet and the beast just burnt away. What does it say? They are. And that, by the way, that word are in Revelation is very significant because he is telling them they are what? They exist. They are. And that word are, and throughout Revelation, he'll say the, those golden candlesticks, they are this. They are that. A thousand years later, and where are the beasts and the false prophets? They're tormented day and night forever and ever, aren't they? That means that fire is a special kind of fire, isn't it? It isn't a consuming fire. It's a fire that's going to preserve them. Now come over to Mark 9. Mark 9. Mark 9. Tremendous passage here. And we'll look through this in greater detail. We'll spend a whole session on Mark 9. But I just need you to catch what's happening here. First of all, hell is real. And we'll look at some more verses on this as we talk about why God created him. But it's a place of torment. But the torment is going to go on forever. And there's no end to it. Mark 9, 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than to having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter and halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God. So that tells you, by the way, where, is their, where do they expect life to be? In the kingdom, okay? Which with one eye and having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire. Now you got this thing about salted with, but with what? Fire. So the fire, what kind of fire? It's, it's, a, it's, it's not a consuming fire, but it's a fire that causes the individual to suffer Physically. How you know what kind of fire it is, is you remember Moses and the burning bush, Exodus 3? That bush was on fire, but the bush wasn't what? Consumed. There's the fire. So in verse 43, by the way, verse 44, 46, 48, and the new Bibles are all gone. They pull them all out. That's how they get around all that. But in, look at verse 48. It's clear that they're still, they're, they're, they're a, Revelation 20, what are they? They're alive. They're there. They're being consumed. They're being tormented. Now, Jesus Christ, he's talking in Revelation here. By the way, Mark 9, he's talking about out here. Look with me at Isaiah 66. Here's where the Lord is talking about. When you think about the issue of eternal judgment and hell and the lake of fire, Jesus Christ talked about hell and eternal damnation more than anyone else in Scripture because the prophets talked about it. So he talks about it. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make. So where is that at? That's out here, isn't it? Verse 24. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. And their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be at a whoring unto all flesh. That doesn't sound like they're all going to be re resurrected into eternal life in the good side, does it? It doesn't to me. 
Now, I know what they do. They pull a little read the def and they do this and they do that and they say in the original it means that. No. What does it say? It says that you're going to look at the carcasses of men. Have you seen a carcass of a Have you ever come across a carcass of an animal out in the woods? It's not a pretty sight, is it? Usually, it, you know, it depends on what stage you got to them. This is their end stage. What are they? They're a worm. Have you ever come across a carcass full of maggots? That's what he's talking about, worms. The degenerative nature of the soul, the sin's effect on, soul, on their soul. Sin hurts. Sin, sin uh, causes a degeneration. It just, it's disgusting. That's the word I was looking for. Sin will, it'll mess you up. These guys are on it forever and ever and ever. Out in the new heaven and the new earth, this lake of fire is still there. And literally what happens, oh my goodness. All right. What happens is, is when he comes down in his second coming, he comes down across Bozrah and Idumea, he burns open a shaft that's going to look down into the lake of fire. The Greek word here, if you need a Greek word in, in Mark 9, is Gehenna. It's called the garbage dump. But it's not just the garbage dump where you go, like your black barrel goes to. It's the garbage dump where Solomon had caused the, the, the worshiping of the god Moloch to take place by the sacrificing of children. And when they sacrifice their children in their worship, Josiah, when he shows up, he goes in and cleans out the Baal worship, and he burns it, and he dumps all the ashes in the valley of destruction, the valley of decision, the valley of Haman, it's called. And he says, you don't call it that anymore. This is, this is no, no, this is where all that is. And you know what you do when you look down into there? What's going to happen is they're going to see what, what sin did and the transgressions that were the result of it. Come back to Matthew 5. So don't be afraid of talking about hell. Don't be afraid to understand that there is going to be a day of judgment and it's going to go on forever. So what happens? Well, we just love Jesus. We're just going to talk like Jesus. What would Jesus do? So let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, and let's just follow the Beatitudes, right? Well, look at Matthew 5. He's in the Sermon on the Mount. He just gave them the Beatitudes in the first 12 verses there. But look down at verse 29. Here's Jesus Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, if that's your go-to passage. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that thou that one of your, thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Wait a second. On the Sermon on the Mount, what's he talking about? Don't get cast into hell. And he's not talking about paradise. He's talking about going over there on the torment side of the equation. Because back here, in time past, hell's got two compartments. We got the torment side and we got the paradise side. And we'll look at Luke 16, and we'll draw that out for you so you understand. Those two compartments are there. Now, come over to Matthew 25. Because this passage gets brought up in the conversation. Matthew 25. Folks, I just catch this morning, hell's real. The torment is real. Okay? And your best effort to sugarcoat it, does nothing but hurt. It makes the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, of none effect. Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So where is that? That's over here. We're out future. We're out over here. One of the components in the second, I say components, one of the events, the second coming of Christ, there are different events that happen in what is called the second coming, the second advent. Okay, One of the events is the judging of the nations. When this day comes, there's 75 days in here, according to Daniel, where these things are going to hammer out. 
The new covenant gets instilled into the believing remnant, the little flock, the true Israel of God. The Old Testament saints first are resurrected first, then the new covenant is instilled, but then there's this judging of the nations. Look there at verse 32. And before him shall be gathered all what? Nations. That's not Israel. Israel is set and done. Now we're talking about the Gentiles. And he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divides sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. And then shall the king say unto them on his right, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and, they, and he goes through this whole list here. And then they ask him, well, Sir, when did we do this to you? Verse 40. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, And as much as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What, what are they claiming? What's he, what's he executing here? The Abrahamic covenant. You bless, I'll bless. You cur- I'll curse you. Hey, Abraham, I'll bless them that bless thee, and I'll curse them that curse thee. So there's going to be Gentile nations out there who are going to bless the true Israel of God and take care of them. And he says, okay, you guys, you get to go on into the kingdom. We're right here. Go in. That's how he can look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at the Pharisees and the scribes and say, you're going to be standing right there watching Gentiles go into the kingdom that should be yours, but you're not yours because of your unbelief and your vain religious system, and the fact that you rejected the Messiah. They're going to get it, and you're not, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to scream bloody murder. How did they get it? When I, And he's going to say, Abrahamic covenant right there, and that's an official proclamation by the king on the throne, leveling it out. Verse 42, 41. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh Uh-oh, you know what happened to that group? They didn't get to wander around for a thousand years. They went right into hell. Why? Because the righteous judge sits on the throne. Folks, I hope you understand. Now, you and I, we're in the heavenly places. (laughs) We're watching this. I hope you understand that in that, th- in that kingdom, especially the introduction of the thousand years, if the speed limit is 55 and you do 56, you're instantly judged. You're instantly executed. So then what speed are you going to drive at? 45, 40, just in case the tires are all out of whack, you know. I ain't driving, I'm walking. Well, how in the world then can those Gentiles be there that, that Satan catches, you know, after the thousand years? Well, what'd they do? They laid low, didn't they? <laughs> they obeyed the law. They didn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't believe the little flock when they came around knocking on the door. They just said, you know what? I saw Paul go 56, and he's not, I can't find Paul no more, so I'm picking on Paul. So guess what? I, I ain't going anywhere. I'm Ubering everything. <laughs> and I'm uh, door dashing every Uber Eats. That's the one. I'm bringing it. I, why? So then what happens? When Satan shows up, then there they are. They can go. You follow? I, I, it's important to get that. But notice in verse 41, ye cursed into everlasting fire, and here's for next time, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. God in response to the fall of the adversary, the fall of Lucifer, and him out trafficking his lie to the angelic realm, God created a judgment that was so devastating, so drastic, so terrifying, that it stopped the angels in their steps. And he called it hell. He called it lake of fire. He never intended for man to go. But what did man do? Fell to. Now watch verse 46. And, there shall, and, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Everlasting, no end, forever. 
Now call her to Luke 1. And this is where everybody goes, well, that eon, that's age, and age has an end. And not, but that word eon doesn't mean age. It means eternal. Well, how do you know that? How about Luke 1? I don't usually say stuff without a verse to show you, I hope. <laughs> look at Luke 1, and look at verse 31. Luke 1, 31. We got Mary. She's going to have the baby. Gabriel's talking. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth his son and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his, da of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob for how long? That's that word eon, by the way. And of his kingdom there shall be what? There's Eon again. How long is that going to last? Forever. It ain't going to ever end. The judgment of the lost is going to go on forever, eternal. Now, I realize that the topic is not a popular topic, but it's greatly needed to be understood. So that you, as if, so if you, first of all, if you hear craziness, you can say, hang on a minute, There's, here's some answer to the crazy. But more importantly, it makes the gospel real clear. And it magnifies the grace of God. Because what is, what is, what do you deserve? You deserve the lake of fire. Forever and ever and ever. But what did, what did the Father say? I'm going to put that indictment of guilt on my son and his activity at Calvary. And man, all you need to do is believe that. The wonderful thing about the love of God is it is never placed upon you because you are worthy of it. It was placed on it because he is worthy. And he's the one to be paid attention to. So we're going to look at the issue there in Matthew 25, 41 of why God created hell. And we're going to look at, but we're going to look at it dispensationally because you'll see we get it back here in time. Today... And then again out there in the future. Okay? I'm not trying to bore you. I'm not trying to scare you. I just need you to understand this critical doctrine. It's under attack today by friends of ours, people that we would say friends, but it's un under attack by the world out there. Because the last thing you want to do is tell people that their end is not going to be a good end. You've got to be nice to everybody. Well, you know what? If you hold back the truth, you're not being nice. You're not being loving. So you need to have the truth, okay? All right. Dear Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we thank you for who we are in your son, for the all spiritual blessings, for the completeness, for everything that you've given to us in your son. We know that's true because that's who you are. That's what your word says to us. And Lord, we also thank you for being a just God. Not only for being the justifier, but for being just and giving what is required, what's just and honest and of good report. In your name we pray, amen.